Lord, help us today to consider, Lord, what it is that you want us to be impacted by as we walk our way through this passage. We are humbled by the fact that you in your wisdom would give us Mark's gospel, that we would be able to see your son Jesus Christ on display, that we would seek to understand who he is, but Lord, also what he has come to do. And so Lord, help us today to, to, to really discern your purpose for us from this text. And Lord, may we uh, just be humble before you. May we be teachable. Allow me as your messenger to reflect your truth, Lord, to your people so that we can grow. And Lord, be the kind of church and the kind of people you want us to be. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning by um, a quotation from John MacArthur, and just listen to what he says. The gospel is not for good people, but for bad people who know they are bad and who come to God for forgiveness and cleansing. Let me say that again. The gospel is not for good people, but for bad people who know they are bad and who come to God for forgiveness and cleansing. The words of Jesus in our text today provide for us the central reality and and rationale for the incarnation. Why did Jesus come? And we are told here in verse 17, I came not to call the righteous, but who? But sinners. So Jesus came to call sinners to himself. Now just think through that. Jesus is in the business of calling sinners, and he calls us. So those who know that they have a terminal spiritual illness and who, who have put their trust not in themselves but in Christ, Jesus says to us and then to those who are wrestling with this, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the door of entrance into the kingdom, and as you remember, Mark is showing us this gospel of God, this gospel of the kingdom. The the door of entrance into this kingdom is found by traveling the same path as the penitent tax collector who stood while beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, what? A sinner. Now, friends, this this expression, sinner, is not a popular word today, is it? I mean, even Christians don't like to be called sinners. (laughs) But the word of God is going to be very, very clear for us. This is a, a word that we must embrace as true. We must acknowledge the fact that this is who we are. Augustine said, Lord, save me from that wicked man, myself. 
John Knox, the Scottish preacher, said, In youth, in middle age, and now after many battles, I find nothing in me but corruption. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Notice he doesn't say, I was foremost. He's speaking here as a Christian. And he still sees himself as a sinner. Now, Salvation cleanses the sinner, removes the sinner from the power of sin, but while we are here on this earth, we still struggle with the presence of sin. We still face sin. We still sin. It is what we do. Praise be to God. We who have embraced Christ as our Lord and Savior have had that sin paid for. Our standing before God is secure because of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us on the cross. And so when, when God looks down at us, he looks down at us as sinners, but he looks down at us as sinners who have been forgiven by virtue of Christ. And so the Apostle Paul confesses in Romans 7, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And we can all relate to that. It's a struggle for us. So to those who think of themselves as being good or without any need for God, and that might be you here, here's what Romans 3, 10 through 12 says. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, just in case you were questioning what he meant by none righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God, which, by the way, should cause you to question what's called the seeker-sensitive movement. All have turned aside Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Sinful people don't seek God. They don't want anything to do with God. However, if you are in the place where you are on a journey and you, you kind, of, kind of are in this place where you're, you're feeling, you're thinking that, that there's some there's some tug about you to, to consider who God is and who Christ is and what this thing called the gospel is. It may very well be not that you have been seeking God, but that he is, in fact, seeking you. He is the one who seeks out sinners and draws them to himself. The fishing line has been cast, the hook has been secured, and you are in the process of being drawn to Christ yourself. There is incredible power when you see that it is God that is at work in the lives of people. 
Not just people wandering around saying, well, let's see, is it going to be Islam? Is it going to be you know, Mormonism? Well, Christianity. Okay, then what form of Christianity? Are we gonna... All right. How about this one? I, I made this choice, and it was a smart choice. No, God made a choice. He sought you out. He hooked you up. He pulled you in, and you are saved by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, we, we must see this from God's perspective, because he's not you know, standing up there in heaven saying, oh, I wonder what's going to happen with them. That's not the God of the Bible. That's how man has manipulated the God of the Bible to satisfy their own desires and to say, I'm the one who made this decision. No, you're not. Because there's no righteous, there's no not one. There's no one who seeks after God. The only reason you're a child of God today is because God has been at work drawing you to himself, embracing you into his family. It's all of grace. But you might be feeling some things or asking some things in your heart, some, some questions bouncing around in there. Why do I feel so empty inside? Why is it that when I bite into the apple of life that it's supposed to be sweet, but in fact it's actually sour? Why is it that the circumstances of my life are just piling upon me? Could it be that God is orchestrating things in your life so that that is the very feelings that you're feeling because he is at work in you? In our passage today, Jesus, the Son of God, is seeking out a man named Levi. We know him better as Matthew. He is the one who wrote the first gospel that we have in the New Testament, at least from the chronological aspect of our Bible. He is the host of a party that is a celebration, we think, of his conversion. And here is how I want us to consider this passage, just begin to ponder through our text today. It's a very familiar passage of scripture, but, but I, want, I want us to think about what is revealed here. Mark wants his readers to see that Christ, in the face of opposition, clearly explains the nature of man's condition. And you could even add to that, and the solution that comes from the heart of the great physician. So to that end, this passage is really divided up into two sections, Jesus and the sinners, and then Jesus and the self-righteous, who would be the scribes of the Pharisees. So let's jump in, Jesus and the sinners. Jesus and the sinners. Verse 13, he went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And so we need to kind of reach back a little bit and just remind ourselves what it was that Jesus was doing. What has he been about? Remember, his priority was not to cast out demons, was not to heal people of their diseases. Although he is a compassionate man, he's a compassionate God, his real purpose was to go into the villages and to preach the gospel of God. His ministry was teaching, his ministry was preaching, but along with that, he was performing miracles. He was compassionate, but that was always secondary to the preaching and teaching, and so we find him now being caught up with these people, 
who are sitting down now listening to him teach. He's beside the sea, which gives us a little idea that there actually may be a larger crowd. If you've ever been to Israel at all, and you've been to the, some of the places where they say, hey, this, this is probably one of the places where Jesus actually you know, gave his, 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 his sermons or, or preached to the multitude, you can actually stand there. You can, you can audibly hear the acoustics just off of the shore. It's pretty amazing. I mean, in those days, you know, they didn't have microphones like this. So any kind of acoustic help would be beneficial. And so here he is, and people are coming. They're coming because they've heard what he's done. They've probably sat under his ministry before. And the last thing we saw is that Jesus claimed to forgive a man of his sins, and he was a paralytic. And to show that he had the authority to do that, he says, get up, take your bed, and walk. So he gets up. Wow. And so they're back again. They want to hear what Jesus is going to say now. See, this is just got to think through. Why does Jesus use miracles? He's using miracles to get people back to the truth, to get people back to the place where they're saying, I need to listen to this person. It's not about the miracle. It's to get back to the, the message of the gospel. Now, we have two, two calls, so to speak, in this section with Jesus and the sinners. The first call is a call to follow, a call to follow. And here we have Levi, or we know who is also Matthew, who is being called, verse 14. And he, as he passed by, as Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. I would like to say, first of all, that this is a radical call. Okay? This is a radical call. Just like at the beginning of Mark's gospel, when Jesus comes to the fishermen, he says, follow me. It was no small thing. This was a radical, life-changing, authoritative call. Jesus come preaching the gospel of God, but he's also setting up a regime change, a new king with a new kingdom, and now there are some people that are necessary to be a part of helping that king lay out this new kingdom. And so he's, he's gathering around himself his disciples who would be those people. Now, the question I would have for you is this. If you were setting up a new kingdom and you were the king, who would you choose to be around you? Probably not fishermen. Although I'm sure that you know, everything we can say is they were probably decent, hardworking, run-of-the-mill guys in their town making a living with their families. You know, have you ever been in a situation, you've met someone who is just incredibly gifted, they're so full of connections and, and influence, and in your heart you're, you're just saying to yourself, wow, if this person came to Christ, they would, they would make a great Christian. You ever thought that way? Oh, sinful you. I have, right? I mean, it's natural, right? We, we, we think of things in human in terms, but, but somehow we, we struggle by, by thinking that man's natural giftedness is the strength behind the kingdom. But that is not Jesus' view. He doesn't, he doesn't bring around him the elites of that day, the powerful of that day. He just brings around him run-of-the-mill people. 
And in this case, he brings around him a man by the name of Levi, who, you know, is a tax collector. We'll get to that in just a second. But when he comes and he calls him, he says, follow me. This is understood to be like a military command. It's an order. It's a command. Levi, follow me. Now there's, there's every, I think, there's, there's room here to say this may not be the first time that Jesus actually spoke or, or that Levi sat under his ministry because he had been teaching. So maybe he had been pondering some things at this point in time. But it was time to answer the call. Now friends, here, here's something we need to think about. Sometimes we, when, we, when we minister the, the gospel, <laughs> We can minister tentatively, you know, we're like, I'm, I'm gonna meet with someone, I'm gonna share a verse of scripture with them, we're like, um, I wonder whether or not I can like slip this in, and you kinda like, I'll, I'll say it, and I'll say it tentatively, and I quoted that verse of scripture, and I'm like, oh, okay, God in there. But what we may not realize is that that word of God is far more powerful than you can ever imagine. And if God is chasing someone down, he is chasing them down. And so that word that we, that we proclaim, that word that we minister, maybe it's, a, maybe it's sitting face to face, or maybe it's in a letter or, or a card or something like that. It might even be in a text. But God is at work through the ministry of his word, and there is a call that comes through that, and it's powerful, and it's authoritative. I just want to encourage you, allow the word of God to be the means of power in your life and ministry. It's breathed out by God. It doesn't return empty, the word says. Now don't, don't be cheesy with it, right? Don't just throw out the word of God at every little corner and, oh, here comes the person. All they're doing is quoting scripture. I'm just saying here, being purposeful and careful that when you minister the word, God is at work in that. And you believe that. You trust that. Now, as I said, this is a radical call. It's an authoritative call, and it's a command. Secondly, it's a scandalous call. Now you say, why is it scandalous? Well, Matthew, or Levi, was a tax collector. Now, things, this is stuff most of us already know, but it's worth us going through and reminding ourselves of the implication of the fact that he is a tax collector. In, in that day, because Israel was under Rome, there was this system called tax farming. It was kind of like a, a tax franchise of sorts. All right, so it's, it's kind of like, you know, Levi was a, an owner of a McDonald's there in Capernaum, okay? But it's not a McDonald's, it's a, it's a taxing agency. And what happens is Rome would, would set up the, the tax that they needed to come from that particular town, and they would put it out to bidders. And a person would bid, and, and they would grant someone, a tax collector, then the responsibility of, in a year's time, you come back with this amount of tax. All right, so this was happening all over the region. All right, tax farming. But there were, there were fixed taxes, um, and then as a result of that, those tax collectors could actually add to those taxes because there were fixed taxes, but there were also duty taxes. So anyone that was traveling down the road, the tax collector could say, hey, come over here, let me search your stuff. Oh, I found something here that's gonna be, you know, I don't know what, 
what it is, but it's going to be a you know, dollar here, and that's going to be $5. And, and, and you're, at, you're at the whim of those people. So these tax collectors are not, you might want to say, the equivalent of, um, of our IRS at all. These guys have been given a responsibility, and yet they're taking advantage of people. Why? Because they can. Let me try to paint a picture. Imagine this is what would happen at our toll booths at the bridges. The government farmed it out and says, we require $5 to cross each bridge. Okay, I'll take that one. I'll take the San Mateo Bridge. All right, and I hire 10 of you to work at the booths. Right? And you're like, okay, this is good. Now, I, since this is, my, this is my bridge company now working for the government, we need to pay them $5 for every car that comes over, but we have to make some money, so we're going to add $2 to that. And then you as an individual say, well, that's nice, so I've got to make sure that they get $7 in total because they've got to pay their $5, but they're coming through my booth. And if you're going to come through my booth, I'm going to charge you 3 bucks. So it ends up being $10. Right, so but the point is, this is what would happen with tax collectors in that day is that they would go way above and beyond the tax that even Rome required, and they would, they would force people to pay taxes that really was a means of extortion on the people. So it's no wonder, is it, that tax collectors were despised by the people by virtue of what they do, but secondly, that they were despised by virtue of who they were working for. They were cohorts with Rome. And there was no tension between Israel and Rome at all on that day, right? Of course, of course there was. So if you were, you were working with Rome, so you, that, was, that was not a good thing. And so because they were so despised, because they were sharks, because they were considered to be vermin, the only people that tax collectors would hang out with would be what? Other uh, tax collectors, right? We're all in this party together. We're all going to be facing and enduring this stuff together. All right. This is my social community. So uh, in that sense, they were the, the scum of the earth of society, so to speak. But Jesus comes to Matthew then, or to Levi, and he, he says to this vermin, shark, extortioner, scum of the earth, follow me. I mean, it's, it's a pretty radical, scandalous thing in that context. See, Jesus cares about the demon-possessed. We've seen that. He cares about a sick mother uh, of a friend. He cares about uh, these, these lepers that he ends up healing. He cares about, uh, about the paralyzed man. But Jesus also cares about those that society considers unreachable and unchangeable. Now, when I say unreachable and unchangeable, in your mind, you are thinking of a particular group of people. There are people that just pop into your head and you don't have to say them, we don't want to hear them, but in your mind, there are certain kinds of people that just seem unreachable and unchangeable. They might be working in the same office with you and you deal with them every day and they constantly blaspheme God and they constantly have in their, their minds and their hearts an agenda that is so anti-God. And you're saying to yourself, there is no way this person would ever humble themselves to God. 
Can I remind you of a, of a guy by the name of Saul, whose name ultimately was also understood as Paul, who was a persecutor of Christians. He was a murderer and led murders and persecution of Christians, and yet God gets a hold of his life. And so there's an application for us to think through, and here are some questions for us to consider. Have we been deceived into believing that there is a group of people that are unreachable and unchangeable? Or to put it another way, is preaching or sharing the gospel of good news to a certain segment of society a complete waste of time because they will never hear it or never change? Can a chronic liar change? Can a thief change? Can an alcoholic change? Can a a homeless man with all those bags change? Can sexual predators change? Can the Mormon on your doorstep change? Can Muslims who are blowing people up or mobbing in railway stations, causing havoc around the world, can, can they end up be, being, bowing the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ as followers and believers in the one true gospel? What's, what's, what's the answer to that question in your heart? Now, you know the answer in theory. But do you live like the answer that you know in theory? Do you interact with people like you know the answer in theory? If God can save anyone he chooses to, do we live like that? And do we approach life like that? Do we consider the circumstances that we're in with that in mind? Does Christ's authority and power somehow end with the people that you think are unreachable? Listen to Paul's words in his first letter to the Corinthian church. Chapter six, verses nine and following. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Yes, 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 we say. But read on. And such were some of you. See, we're all a bunch of angry, you know, conservative, right-wing Christians hating everyone. Wait a second here. This is who we were. This is who we are. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. All things that happen at the moment of conversion. All of that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Now friends, this is a radical call, but it is a scandalous call to those who are outside looking in. We'll get to that. But this is also a call to follow, a call to follow. Notice how Levi, this this vermin tax collector, responds to Jesus' call to follow me. 
Verse 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth and said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. He rose. Luke's gospel, giving the same account, but gives us a little bit more color and detail, he says, he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. Now, you just need to think about what's going on here. Here's a guy who has his own business, his own livelihood. And you know what? You've you, you, you got to be pretty skillful to get to the place where you got that job. Because not only are you connected to Rome, which probably has some kickbacks and benefits, especially if you're meeting your quota. If you're not, look out. But if you're meeting your quota, it's probably pretty good. And you're making money on the side because you can just do what you want. But he leaves everything. And he follows Jesus. Now, by that, I'm not saying, hey, get out of your job and just go follow Jesus. I'm not saying that. The, the application is, is, a, is a spiritual application. However, there may be some times when you do need to do that. That's a whole other story. But there's a commitment going on here that is complete and full. He's leaving his post. It's a permanent leaving of that post. And not to mention just the financial security that he's leaving. He could say with Paul, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, in his mind, he may not have completely understood all the implications of that, but he knew something. He knew that this preacher, this teacher who came with a gospel was calling him to follow him, and he stops, and he leaves it all, and he responds in obedience to that call. This wasn't a call that says, I want you to consider this. I'll be back in two weeks. Ponder it, think about it, talk to it, people, get some counsel. No, this was a come and we're leaving now. And he gets up and he goes with Jesus. So he lost his career, but get this, he gained a destiny. He lost his material possessions, but he gained spiritual fortunes. He lost earthly security, but gained eternal life. So, with authority and divine wisdom, Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, and Matthew obeys, and the scene changes, and now we find him hosting a barbecue in his home. We've seen the call to follow, and now there's a call to fellowship. Verse 15, and as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. This is really an incredible scene. I mean, Levi here is uniquely selected by Jesus to come and to to be a part of that that inner circle as a disciple, but there were many others who were now following Jesus too. We don't want to read too much into the text whether Levi was the beginning of all these tax collectors coming to faith um, or or, or following Jesus, but we recognize that there, there has to be some kind of collective thing going on here. Now, of course, there's some question as to whose house is being talked about here. Is it Jesus' house? Is it Levi's house? I take it to be Levi's house because of the fact that his friends are there. It really doesn't matter so much except to say this, that Jesus is present with them. And he is bringing his disciples with him 
to Levi's house to rub shoulders with the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, this is kind of like the, the continuation of the opposition because in Matthew 11, we get some picture, some understanding of how the, the Pharisees or the religious elite begin to think about Jesus in, in Matthew 11, 19. They, they accuse Jesus as being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But what is Jesus doing? He is joining in by reclining and dining and eating. We would say hanging out with these sinful people. What we see here with Levi is true hospitality. Now Jesus here sets an example for us in how we are to relate to others. I, I do think that there's a tension here for us. When we come to this passage, I think we kind of relate to some of the Pharisees' argument here and thinking, it's like, well, why is Jesus hanging out with these people? Because if I have teenagers, I'm telling my kids what? Don't go hang out with these people. So how is it that Jesus now is setting a bad example for my kids? What's going on there? And there's a whole kind of way we need to kind of process through that because if we're called to be in the world but not of the world, there's a way to be in the world and not be of the world. <laughs> so there's a way you can enter into a place where all these people who are ungodly, who are sinners, who are, I might want to say, the scum of the earth, if you use that term. And yet, Jesus is happy to be there and he's happy to take his disciples there and he is reclining with them. That, that, the whole picture here is of warmth and hospitality, a celebration going on. Now, without going into great detail, I think this is what we can say, that Jesus basically accommodates to them, but in no way does he violate God's standard in that accommodation. So I would say this, the two words would be this, accommodation without violation. Here you are as a believer trying to interact with people that are unbelievers and they're acting like unbelievers. Friends, you know, unbelievers are gonna act like unbelievers, why? Because they're unbelievers, right? Calvin once said, you know, he was you know, trying to explain why it is that unbelievers behave the way they do. He says, well, do you hear that dog barking in the distance? Well, why is it barking? It's barking because it's a dog. Now, he wasn't saying that unbelievers are like dogs. His point was, there's a reason why a dog barks, because it's a dog. And there's a reason why unbelievers behave the way they do, because they don't have Christ. So why would we expect unbelievers to act like those who are following Christ when they're not followers of Christ? So we've got to think through this. But then how do we enter into those situations and not be tainted or affected by what they're doing? And this is where the expression salt and light comes in. In other words, Jesus goes into this context not to be influenced by them, but he goes into this context to influence them. Your light, you're shining into that darkness. Your salt, you're bringing preservation power. You are, you are impacting them by your very presence. And Jesus then accommodates, but he doesn't violate. 
And I think this, those are two words that help us. We can go into a context. You have some friends, and they're, they're saying, well, hey, we're having a birthday party for so-and-so, and you know it's not going to be the greatest environment. Should we go? Should we not go? There's this kind of, well, you've got to figure out what's going what's to be going on at that point in time. But, but live with the principle, I want to accommodate as much as I can, but I do not want to violate God's word in any way, shape, or form. And some of that is going to be different for each person who's going to be facing that situation. Right, so these are just some, some tensions that come out of this, right? So here we have this call to, to follow and this call to fellowship. But now I want you to notice Jesus and the self-righteous. Now the story gets fun. Jesus and the self-righteous. Verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And you wonder whether there was a little more of a snarkiness to that statement. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? So here we have the, the scribes of the Pharisees. Notice there's a subset here of the Pharisees. These are scribes of the Pharisees. The scribes were known as being teachers of the law. They were masters of the law. And the Pharisees loved the law. They were the descendants of uh, the Hasidim, an expression uh, used in the Psalms for the faithful. So they considered the ones who were standing faithful for God. They had a great love and devotion for the law, and that is to be commended, especially in the context of Greek philosophy that was coming in a barrage even on Judaism at that point in time. But their devotion ultimately led them to idolatry. Let me explain this. They came up with 613 laws in the Old Testament. 248 of them are positive, 365 are negative. But, they said, in order to make sure that we don't break a law, we're gonna, we're gonna add some other laws, some other regulations. They're gonna put a hedge around the law so that, so that you won't even get through the hedge and break that law as if that's possible, right? But that's what they did. And I think they did it at the beginning with good intentions because of their love for the law. But what we find in Jesus' day is that their hedge laws had risen to the place to actually equal or actually supersede the law of God. It became the focus of attention. So to be a Pharisee, therefore, was to commit oneself to radical separation. And this is what is going on. This is why they're asking the question. So the question, ultimately, that is agitating them is this question. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he spending time with those who have no regard for the law? See, the Pharisees refused to buy food from these people. They, they refused to eat food in the home of those who were not Pharisees. In fact, they, they just didn't even want to associate. They didn't want to rub up next to them because they feared being ceremonially unclean. Therefore, they were to keep sinners at arm's length. Now, if we look at this text, though, through the, through the lens of the Pharisee, here's what the Pharisees are saying. They're not seeing the tax collectors as the, might want to say, the lowest of the low, although they might believe that. They're saying, 
If you are not a Pharisee, you are a sinner. In other words, the only people that Jesus should be fellowshipping with are the righteous, are the Pharisees, are the ones who love the law, are the ones who keep the law, are the ones who love it so much they're protecting it. So anyone who was not a Pharisee was considered a sinner. So those in attendance at this barbecue are not necessarily the gutter of Palestine, but simply those who are not like the Pharisees. And there's a, there's a subtle attitude that oozes from, from this text, right? It's an attitude of elitism that looks down on certain groups of society and says something like this. We are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. There's room enough in hell for you we can't have heaven crammed. You're not good enough. You don't meet the standard. You're not like us. Of course, our church isn't affected by this at all, is it? That's sarcasm, guys, just in case you were wondering. We would be offended if someone called us pharisaical. That's a a Christian insult. You're being a Pharisee. How dare you say that I'm a Pharisee? Well, you're a Pharisee for even saying that I'm a Pharisee. All right, I mean, you can go down this thing. But hear this. We do loathe the Pharisee in theory, but are we Pharisees in practice? We're always watching what other people are doing. Oh, there's some people missing today. I wonder where they are. They're playing golf. I hope he scores a hole in one. Because he won't be able to tell anyone that I was playing golf on a Sunday morning. Now, you see, we we, we can have these attitudes. We can start asking questions and and, and saying, well, the reason this is happening in their life is because of this and this and that. And we've got to be very, very careful that, that we're not just saying, Here's scripture that's something that comes out of it. But now we're, now we're being Pharisees. We're, we're using the, the word properly. We're, we're discerning what's happening in the life of people, not simply by the word of God, but, but by what we think is going on and, and applying that and, and applying it in an inappropriate way. Now, friends, here's one of the things that happens. As Christians in a place like Castro Valley, which has a, a number of evangelical churches, You can go through a whole year attending Bible studies and prayer meetings that are 100% Christian, playing softball and basketball with Christians, eating dinner and socializing with Christians, having a Christian dentist, a Christian doctor, a Christian mechanic, a Christian plumber. And the result is we pass by all sorts of people who are not followers of Christ, but we're not even talking to about Christ because we're happy to rest in our Christian bubble. Now, I wanna wanna clarify, I wanna make sure I'm not misunderstood. I I don't think it's wrong for there to be a Christian bubble. I think actually that's pretty much what the church is. 
It's a place where Christians come to gather for worship to praise their God. We want to have people who are unbelievers even coming and joining with us. Why? Not because we think that they can worship God, but because we want them to see what worship looks like among people who actually believe in God. And by virtue of that, be a testimony so that they will be drawn to God by virtue of the testimony of the church that loves the gospel. Okay, We want that. So it isn't necessarily wrong to to have this bubble, but it may be way out of balance. And this is when we stop thinking as Christians and simply behaving in a certain way. Well, this is where the Christians go, and this is, you know, have you seen there's there's the Christian yellow pages? Honestly, there's there's times I don't want to go to a Christian so-and-so because it's become a marketing tool anymore. And why shouldn't I go to a person who's not a Christian and have an opportunity to say to them, thank you for working on my car, or thank you for doing this, or thank you for doing that. You do really great work and just building up a, a conversation. Well, I trust that the Christian's gonna do better work. Well, let me ask you this, do you, do you trust a God who's gonna work through whomever to bring about help for you? Now, I'm not telling you to go and tear up all your contracts with all these different people who are Christians. My point is, we, we create this, this bubble. We like to live in this bubble because it's comfortable, but by virtue of that, it's very likely that we have removed ourselves from being an influence in our culture. In other words, Jesus would say, hey, I know you're in there, Levi. When you want to come out, I want to talk to you. I know you got some good friends in there, but hey, hey, come on out. I want to talk to you. God, I didn't want to go in there because I don't want people to think wrongly of me and... Why are we so consumed by looking at what other people are doing? Rather than saying, here's a person who's growing in the Lord, who's strong and mature in the Lord, and they're in a situation where they're surrounded by unbelievers. Praise God. Rather than saying, what are they doing with them? I mean, just go to an A's game. You'll find out you're among all sorts of people, right? And they're certainly not believers there, right? So anyway, that's another thing. I mean, they're A's fans, right, so. I'm just joking, okay? Just joking, because the Giants aren't any better, so. There's this Christian bubble. Now, this is the question that agitates them. They are, they are struggling now, why is Jesus doing that? And here's the answer that confronts them. And this isn't just some small answer, this isn't just some light answer that Jesus gives. You see, it was, it was, it was bad enough, you might wanna say, or it was, it was powerful enough that they were rattled by what Jesus said earlier and what he was doing by actually being with the sinners, but what he is now going to say to them is going to send them off in a tailspin. But let's pick up the first thing. Here's what he said, and I think this is is what they would agree with. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You don't go to a doctor unless you're sick. Now, in today's world, even if you're sick, you're saying, I don't know know if I have the money to go to the doctor, but anyway, that's a whole other story. But the point is, you go to a doctor if you're sick. A doctor is there to help those who are sick, not help those who are healthy. So the irony in this proverb is that the Pharisees don't see that they are not healthy either. They are the sick. They are the diseased by their self righteousness, they are sick and they are deceived. In their pursuit of holiness, they have abandoned the command to reach out to the needy and so simply look down on them rather than actually move to help them. I mean, even a doctor washes up carefully before he goes 
into surgery in order to help those who are sick and hurting. Now, uh, history records that when Oliver Cromwell um, ruled England, it was a very short amount of time, but the, the nation experienced a crisis. They, they were running out of silver um, and could not make any coins. And so he, he sent his, his workers to the cathedral to see if there was any silver available. And the people there said, well, the only silver that we have um, are the statues of the saints. To which Cromwell said, melt down the saints and get them back into circulation. <laughs> which, he probably had a good theological reason for doing that too, but, but the friends, there's a sense in which, just, just as you're thinking through just that illustration as we're talking about this, there's a sense in which we as Christians in us need to be melted down, so to speak, and put back into circulation. There's a sense in which we need to look at where we are right now and say, how can we get back into circulation? How can we be back in the place where we are rubbing shoulders with those who are considered, even by society, to be the unreachable or the lowest of the low? But here's really the kicker. Um, So Jesus says, first of all here, in his answer, the sick need a physician, but this is really what is rattling um, these Pharisees. The question is, will they listen to it? Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You cannot enter Christ's kingdom as a self-declared righteous person. Self-declared righteous people seek to measure their goodness based on their works. So, so hear this. Here's what Jesus is saying, and here's what Mark is revealing for us, just simply in this passage. Jesus saves sinners, that's the first section, we see that, but in the second section with the self-righteous, is Jesus saves only sinners. And what he's saying is, you think that these people are the sinners, but what you don't realize, scribes of the Pharisees, is that you are sinners too. Jesus only saves sinners. Now, let's say this might seem really, really basic to us, but it is important for us to recognize that all of us are sinners. And even the person that you're talking to that's an unbeliever, in God's eyes, is a sinner. They might think that they're doing all sorts of good works. And they might. They might be doing those things. They might be trying their best to to please God by their their giving, their time, their energy, their focus. But in God's eyes, they're sinners. And so the only way that, that you can enter into the kingdom is to see that without a shadow of a doubt, you are counted among the sinners. It's not a bad thing for us to stand and to say, God, We are sinners. That's an honest reflection of what he says about our condition. Now, it is true. Not only are we sinners, we are both sinners as well as those who have been, and this is important, declared righteous. We have not become righteous. We don't become righteous by the good deeds that we do. 
We are declared righteous. Now, I'm making this point because it's really, really important. In the Catholic Church, they say you become righteous. That is not what is taught in Scripture. What Scripture teaches is that we are the recipients of a righteousness that is not our own. It is an alien righteousness. That doesn't mean some people flying in the sky and that kind of stuff. It means it's a righteousness that's not your own that is applied to you. It is Christ's righteousness that is put on you. You are a sinner clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You get that? So when we say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm undeserving of your grace. But I'm so thankful for the righteousness of that I have because of Christ. That's why what Paul says emphasizes the preciousness of this beautiful gospel that has come to us. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, you, you hear it a lot, especially on a day when we have the Lord's table. For our sakes he, that's God, made him, that's Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, that's Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Our righteousness is not because of us, it's because of Christ. So when God looks down at us, he looks down at us through the lens or the garments of the righteousness of Christ that have been placed on us and we are forgiven, we are covered, we are clean, we are pure in his eyes. Quickly, I don't have time to flesh these out, I thought I would have more time, but three tensions that come from this text, and this might be something for you to think about, we've touched on them a little bit, tension number one, between the sinful and the righteous. How do these two things work together? If I'm sinful, but I'm also righteous, because of what Christ has done. How do those things work together? And this is, this is all about your pursuit of godliness. The book that the men are, are, are studying, the practice of godliness gets into those things. The pursuit of holiness. We are declared righteous at the point of salvation. We are declared holy at the point of salvation. But we have a lifelong call now to pursue what we already are. And that's why the word of God says, be holy, for you are holy. Be what you already are. So we need to be striving to live that way. Secondly, secondly, there's a tension between isolation and assimilation. Do I just avoid all the ungodly? Do I avoid sinners? Or do I just jump right in and assimilate with them? And there are different, different scales, kind of, where, where different churches and different, different believers kind of fit into that scale. But the answer to that is we must, we must articulate and understand from the word of God a gospel mission that is not exclusive on either side. We, in a sense, isolate ourselves by the fact that we are a church gathered together. We are places of refuge in the context of darkness. But we go out from here to assimilate but we do that in such a way that we're not violating the word of God. Accommodating to people, but not violating the truth of God. 
There's a tension. And there's not a perfect answer. I mean, you're, you're going to interact with different people, and you're going to have to sort through, what does God want me to do in that particular context? There's a tension going on here, friends. And the third tension is this, having to do with our conviction. There's a lot maybe you could talk about as you meet in home groups. I know home groups are not meeting this week, but even for future ones to bring this up. Um, just, you know, you can say, well, this is my conviction or this is my standard. Right, how many of you have convictions? Hopefully all your hands are up, right? Yeah. How many of you have standards based on those convictions? Are your standards hedges because of your convictions? You see where this is going? And then do your standards become your convictions? There's a tension there. And we need to get back to saying, what is a true conviction? What does it look like? And I need to make sure that what I am saying is a conviction actually should be a conviction. I can still live with my standard. As long as I know it's simply a standard, it's not a conviction. You understand? These are tensions. Let me, let me leave us now and prepare ourselves for our time around the table. Because this is what Jesus is doing in the this, in this story, isn't he? He is sitting down at the table with sinners. And as we celebrate the Lord's table, we are sitting down, well, actually walking by the table, as sinners saved by grace. And we're rubbing shoulders with everyone in this room. There is no one in this room who falls into the category by themselves, without the help of Christ, as being righteous. We are all sinners. There's only one person who's not, and his name is Jesus. We're all sinners. And we all have certain sins that we struggle with, but we all come and place ourselves humbly under the same God, the same Savior, who has given us the same gospel. There's a leveling that takes place of people at this Lord's table. We're singing a song, we sang it earlier, but I want you to, to listen to the words. Come you sinners, poor and needy. Just listen as I say them and think through the implication of the words. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, that's us, right? Weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, love and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome. God's free bounty glorify true belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh or near. Come you weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. Hear this. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture holy. In other words, walk to him, lean on him. Let no other trust intrude. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior, Oh, there are 10,000 charms. I wanted to read that because the content of this is simply reflecting the fact that we're sinners, saved by grace, 
leaning on a Savior who embraces us as sinners. Lord, help us today. Help us to reflect on this condition that you have diagnosed to be true, that we are sinners, and that you came to save sinners, and that you came to save only sinners. In fact, Lord, you, you, can, you can only save sinners because the righteous or the self-righteous will not come unless they embrace the fact that they stand before you as sinners. But Lord, as sinners, we have been showered by your grace. Lord, I just think about how you have pursued us, how you've drawn us, how you've brought us to yourself, and how, by virtue of your son's sacrifice on the cross, we have been reconciled to you Sinners restored, sinners redeemed, sinners welcomed into the family of God. We do not deserve this, Lord, but we rejoice and we celebrate now as we participate with the table what you have done for us on the cross because Lord, without the shedding of your blood, without the giving of your body as that sacrifice once for all, we would not be reconciled. We would not be redeemed. But we are because of your wonderful kindness and grace toward us. We ask this in your name, amen.